This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Hello out there, all you Michigan political junkies. Well, the legislature reconvened in Lansing in the state capitol this past week, Tuesday, April 9th, after a two-week hiatus, a little spring break before Easter, and started attacking a stacked-up pile of legislation looming before them. The latest on the tete-a-tete, shall we call it, between Governor Gretchen Whitmer and the Republican-controlled State House and Senate on Fix the Damn Roads is, as I think everybody knows by now, the governor has issued an ultimatum that she will not sign any budget sent to her by the legislature unless it includes uh, funding for Fix the Damn Roads. And the legislature has said we don't really see the two issues connected the budget on the one hand and extra money more revenue for fix the damn roads we may separate the two and the latest statement from senate majority leader mike shirky is well the governor can maybe expect some extra money for roads in the budget we sent her but it will not be new revenue meaning It will not be raised taxes or fees. It will be money for roads that is coming from elsewhere within the budget, meaning apparently uh, the legislature plans to try to take money from other spending areas and put it into roads. Now, we'll see how all that plays out. On the other hand, the legislature, particularly the Republican majorities in the House and Senate, but you know, a lot of Democrats in both chambers feel exactly the same way, say their number one priority is not fix the damn roads. It is fix the screwed up, hugely expensive auto insurance system that we have here in Michigan, the worst in the nation in terms of cost, the most inequitable. And, the House and Senate both have legislation that they put in to try and address this problem. Uh, over in the Senate, uh, Eric Nesbitt, who is a Republican state senator from Lawton, has introduced Senate Bill 1, which is basically a statement of what Senate Republicans intend the bill to accomplish, and that uh, would include elimination of full coverage personal injury protection, uh, known as PIP, PIP and reducing the high medical costs currently being charged for auto crash victims subject to no-fault coverage. Now, that's just a general statement in this Senate Bill 1. Over in the House, uh, Representative Bo Lefebvre, who is a Republican from Iron Mountain in the Upper Peninsula, Uh, He is working on two options for lowering car insurance rates in Michigan. Uh, He and his House colleagues sponsored legislation containing eight bills that combined will repeal Michigan's no-fault car insurance system. Uh, 
Fave says his plan would allow Michigan drivers to have more say in the insurance coverage they choose by adding more flexibility. Drivers would still need to purchase insurance to drive, but the system would become a full tort system, which is what we used to have until the 1970s when we switched to the no-fault system that we have today, which has become so exorbitant and so broken as far as drivers being able to afford it. Uh, LaFave's plan is comprised, as I said, of eight bills, uh, House Bill 4397 through House Bill 4404, each covering an area of no-fault insurance legislation. Each bill would need to be signed into law, according to LaFave, for the whole system to be reformed. Uh, House Bill 4397 aims to eliminate no-fault law, and once passed, it will make the other bills easier to pass. House Bill 4398 focuses on revising requirements to reflect elimination of no-fault insurance, and on and on. On March 19th, all these bills, all eight of them, were referred to the Committee on Insurance, Each bill needs that first one that I just mentioned, House Bill 4397, to pass before they can continue. Uh, According to LaFave, the medical field and trial lawyers make money from the Michigan no-fault car insurance system now. Uh, House Bill 4024, which is one of the uh, eight-bill package would also require insurers to file their premium rates with Michigan for review. If they were unable to show a reduction in price per vehicle, the insurer would need to explain why. Now, LaFave is hoping to put this House Bill 4024 on the ballot for November 2020. So that's like a year and a half from now, allowing the electors of the state, that means you, citizens, the citizenry, the electorate, the voters statewide to vote and make the decision on whether you want this. According to LaFave, it's not the preferred way, but it's just political enough to work, he said. Uh, The state of Colorado discontinued its no-fault insurance and saved the residents 35%. And LaFave says Michigan has the potential to save more than Colorado. Uh, When the Michigan Catastrophic Claims Association, the MCCA, we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, said that it was raising the mandatory fee that covers unlimited medical benefits for catastrophically injured drivers here in Michigan from $192 a year per vehicle to $220. LaFave was very upset. So were many lawmakers, and they disagreed with Governor Whitmer's idea to audit the association. Quote from Lefebvre, auditing the MCCA isn't going to do anything. We need to change the system, he said. Uh, according to Lefebvre, there was an audit last year. Lefebvre is currently working on another bill. We'll announce it soon. Uh, he says, I started and I will continue to make lowering car insurance my number one job. And frankly, He's not an outlier. He's not a lone wolf. He's kind of speaking for just about everybody in the legislature right now, certainly the Republican majority, and I think um, most of the Democrats, particularly in the Detroit area where the rates are really bad. Now, 
what else uh, is going on? A couple of other things. According to the state court administrator, uh, Michigan's system of funding its trial courts is irretrievably broken and must be fixed. We're hoping to talk to him in a minute about this. Uh, What about wolves and wolf hunting in Michigan? Well, we're going to talk to state senator, we hope, Ed McBroom from the Upper Peninsula about wolves. And we're also going to get a report from Tom Shields, CEO of Marketing Resource Group, on the track record of the President Donald Trump administration in getting the president's nominees confirmed. And I'm talking about ambassadorships. I'm talking about judges. I'm talking about U.S. attorneys. How many of them have there been from Michigan that the president in the past two-plus years has announced that he is appointing? Uh, What are they for? What positions are they going to? Uh, What ambassadorships to what countries? That's all up for grabs. I'll just mention here before we take a break and get our guests, remember, you can go to thebalancerreport.com online. That's T-H-E-B-A-L-L-E-N-G-E-R report.com. And these programs are archived there. So is the Friday morning podcast, which I do elsewhere every week. So you can hear these programs and all the issues we discuss. I'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and I have a very special guest here, uh, the state court administrator, Milton Mack. Uh, He's also a member of the Trial Court Funding Commission. Milton Mack, welcome to The Political Insider. Well, thank you, Bill. Pleasure to be here. Well, you have some observations about our system of funding our trial courts here in Michigan. You say the system is irretrievably broken and it's got to be fixed. What's going on? Well, the problem is that Michigan residents should not face a judge who needs money from that person to satisfy demands for court operating expenses. Uh, That kind of a system creates a real or even a perceived conflict of interest between a judge's impartiality and the need to use the court to generate revenue. And that's just not acceptable. Absolutely. I think everybody would agree with you. Well, how did we get to this point anyway? I mean, how long has this been going on? Uh, It it actually has been a persistent problem for decades, but the Michigan Supreme Court in this Cameron decision uh, threw a monkey wrench into the assessment process which caused the legislature to form the Trial Court Funding Commission to find out how to make a better system. And so that's what we did. We sat down and created a system that would eliminate the reliance on local government and uh, would disconnect judges from the money and uh, would basically kill the value of speed traps. Wow. I think a lot of people would like that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me me ask this. Uh, What would this new system be like set up to provide stability to funding and get rid of the conflict of interest situation you've described? 
Well, the first thing we would do is we would have the state, through state court administrative office, take over and pay for all the technology needs of all the courts in Michigan. Right now, there are multiple systems that don't talk to each other, and it creates a different experience for people depending on what courthouse they go to. So we need equal access to justice. We need to use this technology to reduce the cost of operations and to save money from local government because local government's paying for this stuff now. So that's step one. Step two is all the revenues the courts would collect would then go to the state court administrative office, and then we would distribute that money based on case uh, based on the caseload of the courts. Uh, once you've done that, the value of the speed trap disappears because you can assess the cost and collect the fine, but you might not get to keep it. So the idea is to create a stable funding source to eliminate the need for courts to collect money, and uh, we, we think that would provide a, a much improved system of justice and eliminate the role of a judge in being a fundraiser. I agree. It sounds a heck of a lot more sensible. I guess the real question for most drivers and most citizens of Michigan would be, okay, we're talking about revenue and a stable source of income, and that all makes sense, but what's going to come out of my pocket as a, as a driver? What's going to come out of the taxpayers' pockets in Michigan? I mean, how is this money going to be collected? Where would it come from? It's extra money, as I see it. Uh, well, it's difficult to say. Um, first of all, motorists would probably be paying less because they would not experience as many traffic tickets. Uh, but aside from that, you still have to pay for the technology that we'd be providing. Uh, we don't know how much that will be. But well, right now, the state provides about 13% of the cost of running the judicial system. And the judicial system costs over $1 billion. So local government is picking up the bulk of the cost. We want to rebalance that. We want the uh, burden on local government to be reduced, and we want there to be more of a partnership between the state and local government. Now, that makes a lot of sense. In other words, only 13% is paid for by the state at this point for administration of trial courts. What percentage do you see that getting up to from the state? compared to local government with the plan you have offered? I think it should at least be a third. And you think that would be right away? Would it be phased in? It'd be phased in. Uh, this is not going to be easy. Uh, just providing the technology system for all the courts will take some time. And then uh, setting up the process for collecting revenues from the courts and in terms of um, distributing them will take some time too. So uh, there's nothing fast about this, but we need to get on track. Well, doing some quick primitive uh, mathematical calculations, uh, if you say that the trial system costs over a billion dollars a year, it seems to me if the state so far is only paying 13% of that, like the state is maybe what Alec uh, appropriating 130 million minimum, maybe 150 million a year to do this, and everything right. else is collectively uh, a responsibility of local government. Do you think uh, the state should be up to you know around 330, 350 million out of the cost? Right, right. I would I would agree with that. Well, if that's the case, then you're basically saying this is a plan that not only would provide stability, but 
it would obviously lessen costs for local government, and that would help them. They're always uh, complaining about the loss of support from the state for revenue sharing, let's say. All of a sudden now, maybe they could pay $200 million less for court costs. Maybe we're talking about a different fund, but the state would have to somehow come up in its budget with approximately $200 million more million than it's been appropriating annually in the last few years. Is that correct? I think that's correct. Yeah. Something in that range. The, you know, right now, local government puts pressure on judges to raise money. I've actually seen emails from cities to the court saying, you need to increase your revenue. So there's, there's a real pressure being brought to bear on judges by local communities to raise money. And if they don't raise the money, they cut their budget. So that's just really an unacceptable situation. Well, it really is. And as you say, it's been going on for decades. I mean, how did this get put in place in the first place? I mean, was it always this way back in the 19th century or the early 20th century that local governments were paying for all these trial courts and uh, setting up speed traps to collect the money? Uh, Well, I I would say this. Probably no speed traps before the 1900s. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Not with a horse and buggy. (laughs) Maybe maybe not a problem. Right. But I will say this, that the the problem of judges uh, collecting revenue has been a problem for a long time. Back when we had these municipal judges, their salary was based on the fines they collected. Right, right. Also, remember the old Justice of the Peace? Exactly, the Justice of the Peace, sure. That was done away with in the late 60s, right? Uh, right? Created the district judges and so forth. Right. So maybe that was an improvement, but in terms of funding, it really wasn't. No, it has not answered the question. The, the whole idea of state funding for the courts was raised during the 1962 convention. And it's, it's been talked about for the last nearly 50 years. And um, it's always been talked about in terms of let's go to state funding. Well... I think you're going to have to take a slower track on this and just get started and start picking off some pieces, which is what we're saying here is, you know, start and start picking off these items one by one. Hey, listen, make that trend. Yeah. That, that is fascinating. It really is. And I wish you luck uh, and the commission luck in achieving what you are seeking from the state legislature. Uh, I want to thank Milton Mack, state court administrator, trial court funding commission member. Thank you, Milton Mack. Thank you, Bill. Good to hear from you. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. Okay, we are back, and we've got another guest, Tom Shields. He is the CEO of Marketing Resource Group in Lansing, And he's been doing some research on a topic that you see mentioned from time to time, but never altogether collectively. And he's got a list here and some interesting information. Tom Shields, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Bill. Uh, Tell us what you got here. What have you come up with? Donald Trump and uh, his appointees and uh, the ones from Michigan. What's going on? Well, 
I mean, at this point in time, there appears that there's um, at least uh, ambassadorships. There seems to be there's six uh, people who have been appointed from Michigan with with some type of Michigan connections, you know, to various ambassadorships. Only two of those have been confirmed to date. Four are still sort of you know blowing in the wind and uh, uh, and yet been unconfirmed by the by the U.S. Senate uh, at this point in time. Well, the two that have been confirmed, who are they? Pete Hoekstra? Well, yeah, Pete Hoekstra, you know, to the Netherlands. Uh, he was probably an easy one. He was actually confirmed in 2017, which is very rare for the Senate in this administration, even though you had a Republican Senate back then. Uh, he was, you know, the uh, former congressman from West Michigan and, uh, you know, candidate for U.S. Senate and for governor. And, and uh, he was confirmed back in November 2017. And then we've had a guy by the name of Richard Grinnell, and I don't really know his connections to Michigan except for that he's from here. He seems to be some type of communications expert that worked his, his way up, worked for the United Nations, uh, was a spoke, served as a spokesperson. He had a variety of, 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 of being uh, voted one year as having the best Twitter, Twitter followers uh, in the country back in 2012. So, <laughs> well, no wonder uh, Trump liked popular. Him. But uh, beyond that, there's four guys who are sitting there. Well, who are the four sitting there? But right now, there's John Ricolta, uh, who is, uh, was appointed last year in May 2018 uh, to the United Arab Emirates. Uh, has not been confirmed. John is the, the CEO of Walbridge, a major building company here. He's also a very large Republican contributor, which a lot of these types of appointments go to important, uh, to countries that are not necessarily critical for you know defense or, or foreign affairs. They, they tend to go to you know political appointees, uh, you know, from the president. Right. He's got he's got a, he's got a Romney. He's got a Romney connection too. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, I think he's the brother-in-law of uh, of, uh, of George Romney, or not George of uh, uh, Scott Romney. Um, and Mitt uh, Romney. Yeah. Uh, right. He's brother-in-law of Romney, and and, uh, and and again a long long family connection, but also been a major fundraiser uh, for for not only for Trump but for other other candidates over the years. I think he was also a major fundraiser for for Governor Snyder. Right, and then, then you have David Fisher, who was uh, appointed to as ambassador to Morocco. Uh, he's not been confirmed. In fact, his nomination was actually returned to the uh, to, to Trump's office from the U.S. Senate uh, at at the beginning of this year when the, the new you know uh, majority took over over in the U.S. Senate, and he's the CEO of the Suburban Connection uh, down in Detroit, uh, in, in Troy there, the Suburban Connection, uh, you know, cars, uh, that, and, and he's actually very active in, in the city. But uh, those two have been languishing. Well, now, there were two others, you said. Yeah, and there's two others. There's a woman by the name of Bridget Brink, who has uh, been appointed to the, uh, the ambassador of the Slavic Republic. Uh, she is a professional diplomat, uh, has worked for um, uh, the last three administrations going up, uh, and appears that those that those countries tend to be, you know, those former countries in Russia, old Russia, tend to be uh, nominating people who are professional diplomats, and she's one of those. She was just nominated in, in, in March, uh, so just a few weeks ago. Well, you say this is Slovakia? Yes. Well, you know, interestingly, Slovakia was where Ron Weiser, the former Republican state well, chairman, well, this is the Slovak Republic, and I don't think I don't know if that's the same as the Slovakia. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we'll have a debate. My, world, okay. my, uh, my geography, my world geography, maybe. I'm not sure that Slovak Republic okay. is the same as Slovakia, right. but it could be. Okay. Uh, then and who's... then we have a guy by the name of, of Joseph Chella, who is uh, appointed to the as ambassador to Fiji. Uh, he's not been confirmed. He's been, uh, you know, uh, languishing out there since February. of over a year, 2018. He was, he was a former Makater uh, staffer who um, worked his way up and became sort of a national, or he was actually a, a 
a chair of a, a Catholic organization for for Trump. Became very involved with that. Obviously, another political appointee that has not been appointed yet. So that's the Fiji Islands out in the Pacific. Yeah, I would have taken that one in a minute. <laughs> Well, uh, let me ask you, do you happen to know, I mean, if you have been nominated by the president but not confirmed by the Senate, do you go uh, to these countries like Morocco or the United Arab Emirates or whatever and, and begin functioning as ambassador without having been confirmed? Or do you have to sit back here in the United States for three, six months, a year waiting for confirmation and you can't go anywhere? I, that's a good question. I mean, th- these these um, embassies tend to function with professional diplomats uh, anyway. So the only person that ever gets appointed is the you know is the ambassador. So they tend to to continue to operate and 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 function uh, in a professional capacity. You know, even though the ambassador has not been confirmed yet, whether or not the ambassador is actually on site uh, before he's confirmed is a good question. I really don't. I really don't know that. It would be interesting to ask. But uh, uh, but at this point in time, and it's really strange because Michigan. You know, we've got six have been nominated, only two have been confirmed. But if you look at nationally, look at all of the the uh, spots for ambassadors. You know, these there's 147 from what I can count ambassadorships to be appointed. Wow. And over those, 60 percent have been confirmed by the U.S. Senate. So it's not necessarily that that they have you know rejected everybody i mean here two-thirds of them have been rejected or at least haven't been uh, acted on yet but 60 percent nationally have been uh, there's 32 out there including the four from michigan that are pending another 16 haven't been appointed anybody those are, tend to be really small countries but actually some big ones brazil is one of those that has no nominee at this point in time and uh, nine have been you know nominated by trump and either withdrawn or they were returned like uh, uh like john like uh, david uh, uh david fisher was returned to the, the president uh, asking for somebody else or for him to renominate David Fisher. Wow, amazing. Uh, in other words, Michigan isn't doing quite as well as most of the other states in the country in terms of confirmation. Why? No, do, no why we're do upside you... down here. I think you have to take a look at you know Michigan's two U.S. senators and sort of point fingers at them. And that normally when you have you know these types of nominations that that are made, you they, they look to the you know the hometown senators or the home state senators for you know, for, for help and approval and getting through and, and navigating through the, the U.S. Senate. And, and obviously it doesn't appear that, uh, you know, Debbie Stabenow or uh, Gary Peters are offering any great assistance here to get uh, at least a couple of these folks through. Well, on the other hand, I mean, the Republicans control the Senate uh, both in 2017 and 2018 as well as this year. Think what it would be like if the Democrats control the Senate. Right, I don't think that, any of these the people. Problem. I mean, even Republicans couldn't get these two nominees through, even though they were you know, good, solid Republicans who couldn't get them through. And I don't think you need the 60-vote rule for, for nominations to uh, to be approved for these types of positions. So it's it just, you know, it's just a dysfunction, I think, of government here. So you could, you know, you could go through the first term or maybe the only term of Trump's campaign and never fill, you know, yeah. 20 or 30 ambassadorships uh, around the world. I think, you know, it doesn't speak well for the United States. It looks like we're certainly dysfunctional here. We we can't just appoint somebody who uh, who comes and fills in, and it's different in, in other countries. I know, like dealing with Canada, Canada sort of the, the diplomats are basically professionals, and they don't uh, they don't necessarily fluctuate and change based on administration that comes in. There's not these wholesale changeovers. It's professional diplomats who uh, who just you know uh, they just uh, you know wait until the next administration comes in and they pick back up where they left off. Right. What about some other appointments like U.S. attorney or judgeships in Michigan? 
Michigan by yeah, there, Trump. There's been there's been about um, seven or about five uh, seven seven other appointments uh, that have been out there for other major positions here. Obviously, the judges. Uh, are real, and we've had better luck than that. Out of out of those uh, nominations, there's been five confirmed, and only two that are still pending uh, for judges and 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 people who are on the U.S. district uh, attorneys and other. You know, one one guy I'm appointed to the Joint Commission on uh, with Canada, uh, but you know, right off the bat, you know, you had Joan Larson confirmed, you know, for the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, which was David McKeek's seat. Right. That, that went to uh, you know that went to her and you know she was confirmed back in November 2017. That was that was really quick. Right. Um, Listen, we also I, had a guy I, by the name of Chad Chad uh, who was a, who was also appointed Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. I don't know where he came from, but he he, just, <laughs> uh, but he was just approved in uh, in March of this year. That's great. Listen, we could go on and talk more about this, but you've done a great job of running down this list. I've never seen this or heard this before. Our listeners will be fascinated. Thank you, Tom Shields, CEO of Marketing Resource Group in Lansing. Let me go. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned and we have our final uh, guest, an illustrious guest, state senator, Ed McBroom, Republican of Vulcan. And people will say, Vulcan, where is that? Well, uh, it is a small community up in the Escanaba area, I believe. Uh, Menominee is not too far away, Iron Mountain. Uh, Ed McBroom represents those communities and a huge district, uh, like the western two-thirds or three-quarters of the Upper Peninsula. Is that correct, Ed McBroom? Yes, that's correct. Vulcan is uh, kind of middle of nowhere between Escanaba and Iron Mountain, and uh, I represent uh, 12 of the 15 UP counties, everything except Chippewa, Luce, and Mackinac. Wow. And you also represent Isle Royal. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, but, bigger than five states. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is unbelievable. How People just don't realize. Um, Ed McBroom, you are a dairy farmer, I believe, in private life. Is that correct? Yep, just left the farm this morning on my way to Marquette for some meetings. Well, uh, you know, that brings me to the subject I want to ask you about, and that is wolves um, and wolf hunting. Um and there's been a lot of controversy over the years about wolves, and they're entirely in the Upper Peninsula, as far as I know. Plus, uh, over time, there have been some on Isle Royal, but not in the Lower Peninsula. But I want to ask you, particularly as a farmer, um, are wolves a problem for you, or what do you hear from the general population and from farmers in particular in the UP about wolves? Well, they they have not been a bigger problem for my farm the way i'm set up and handle my cows it's not that much of a problem for us to to mitigate but i have met many farmers who it is a very serious problem one guy who's about 12 miles from me and his neighbor each of them lost more than 10 head of cattle in less than 12 months a few years back Um, they were mostly verified wolf attacks and a few that were indeterminable Um, it's uh it can be a really big problem for us uh, it, I think for my farm, you know, we have the. It makes you a little nervous. Uh, I've had sick cows that I um, 
you know, I worry about in particular when they're outside. And I've a few times worried during the night about how they're going to be and whether something might come along looking for them. So they are they are on the minds of many of the beef and dairy farmers of the UP constantly. And then, of course, they're on the minds of folks with dogs, um, cats, small pets who've had a lot of run-ins. We've had hunters who've had run-ins with them. Um, it's, it's a real-life problem. It's not something that can be ignored or pretend it doesn't exist. It's my understanding uh, the most recent count of the wolf population in the Upper Peninsula where there were 662 wolves in 139 packs. In other words, maybe, you know, five or six wolves a pack. They travel in packs, as I think everybody yep. knows. And I guess my question is there was a uh, limited hunt for wolves back in 2013, but then uh, any more hunts were shut down by the federal government, which put wolves on the endangered species list. Now it looks like they may be delisted. Uh, they Again. may come <laughs> off that list. And what do you think? Do you think it would be a good idea to have another hunt in Michigan? Uh, yeah. Or do you think, you know, this is something that could be controlled uh, without a hunt? And so the, the federal government has delisted the wolves several times over the years. And then through litigation, they've always ended up back on the list again. Um, and we did have that one hunt during one of those periods of delistment. I think we shot somewhere in the 30s or 40s altogether during that. Yeah. And, you know, we were only going to take a maximum. There was a quota somewhere around 90, I think, was the quota. Um, I think it's notable to, that the recovery set for them when they were first put on the endangered species list for the Upper Peninsula was in the 200, and here we are over 600. Um, and, uh, you know, we also make that count during the winter time. so, of course, there's more during the summer, and then, you know, winter takes its toll on their population as well. I do believe that hunting is a legitimate management technique that should be available to us and that the state is best positioned to manage them. Uh, that D.C. doesn't have the ability to truly manage a population in, in, a, in a way that controls it all the way from D.C. to just the U.P. and Wisconsin, Minnesota, and know what's best for each of us. So I think it's important that we have state management, and I think that hunting is a proper tool to utilize in that. You know, up on Isle Royal, uh, as I think we've learned here over the last uh, year or two, the moose population um, has exploded uh, to the point where it's actually, you could say, detrimental to moose um, because wolves have died off that were up there. They were natural predators uh, against moose, and now they're bringing in uh, wolves to repopulate uh, Isle Royal to try and keep the moose population in check. I, I just keep wondering, why can't they trap wolves in the UP and ship them up to Isle Royal? You know? Yeah, it's a major frustration with those of us living here, too, um, especially when you can never seem to get the straight answer from various entities. Is there just one type of wolf? Are these wolves the same as those wolves, or, or are they two different ones? So, um, you know, there's always seems to be different opinions from the experts, and it just leads into conspiracy theories amongst those who um, aren't up to speed with that. So it's a problem. I don't understand why they don't take them either. I haven't gotten a good answer to that. Now they're talking about, oh, we're going to bring this Canadian wolf that's familiar with hunting moose. But we have moose in the UP and elk as well, so it just doesn't make much sense. 
So, in other words, some kinds of wolves don't really attack moose. I mean, the ones you have in the UP don't necessarily attack moose or, or deer or things? They don't. I mean, that's just how, you know, these articles, and, and it could be something that's lost in translation from the expert to the journalist in the newspapers. I don't know. That's what I just read. Uh, this. Senator Ed McBroom, I know that uh, UPers get very frustrated at having people in the Lower Peninsula who have no personal interaction, no experience with wolves, tell you youpers how you should manage your wolf population up there. And uh, so I I know a lot of youpers think, you know, if you had to live with wolves, uh, particularly if you're a farmer, you might not have the same attitude uh, that you are espousing now and uh, giving us hell up here in the UP when we have to live with the wolves. But now... As I understand it, Senator, there's some evidence that maybe wolves are starting to get down into the lower peninsula, uh, maybe crossing from the Hiawatha National Forest uh, over the ice pack in a severely cold winter uh, into like Petoskey area. Uh, What do you think? Is there any evidence that's happening? And actually, you'd probably applaud that, would you? Because you'd say, (laughs) let's get some wolves down there. Uh, to mingle around with the trolls uh, under the bridge, and uh, they'll have to uh, realize what we're going through in the UP. Well, uh, you know, I think most of the trouble folks that we get who come to committees and stuff and yell at us are not from the northern lower anyway. Many of them are coming further south anyway, and I don't ever expect the wolves are going to make it down to Genesee or Wayne or Oakland. But uh, (laughs) I do, uh, I have heard, Various reports from friends of mine that uh, seem compelling, uh, and you know, I think that uh, you know, being a guy from the UP who heard those kind of reports about cougars for decades, and you know, there was always a denial, official denial, they're not there, they're not there, and then all of a sudden, oh, well, lo, oh, there's a cougar, and uh, now multiple <laughs> reports of them. So, you know, I suspect that's kind of what we're going to go through here with wolves too. Yeah, one time uh, the Lower Peninsula had a lot of wolves uh, before yeah. we were really populated in the 19th century, and they pretty much disappeared. And so uh, can I, yeah, go yeah, ahead. I'd, I'd like to add something to a previous question too about you know why I suspect that you know, management should include hunting up here in the UP, and that's the fact that it's my belief, and and I think there's enough evidence to back this up that you know we never have actually really stopped them, even though there's no official sanctioned hunt anymore, uh, I think that people are managing it and they are using hunting to do that. And that's why we're actually hearing some less about conflicts than we were before um, we went through all of this. And what a lot of the people who are opposing the hunt never seem to want to understand is that a managed hunt provides a lot more rigorous structure for how the population will be controlled and kept healthy than just leaving there no option for people to deal with this. And the pressure builds up, and folks finally just deal with it on their own. And I believe the wolf population is more likely to suffer up here in the UP if there's no safety valve, a relief valve for that pressure that the growing population places on the rest of the social structure in the UP, be that wildlife or persons. Wow, that's really interesting. Uh, yeah, I think you've got a very good point there. Well, we'll see what happens with this whole delisting situation. But I want to thank State Senator Ed McBroom 
from Vulcan, which is in the Upper Peninsula near Escanaba. He's a dairy farmer. He served three two-year terms in the House, and he was elected last November to the Senate to a four-year term. Ed McBroom, thanks for being our guest. My pleasure. Thanks so much.